Looking for health info? This is Health News House Call, part of Hackensack Meridian Health's podcast. We're here to provide you with the tools and resources to make informed decisions about your health. Here, our expert providers will provide you with wellness tips, information, and general health advice. This is House Call. Welcome back, everybody. We hope everyone enjoyed the holidays and had a happy new year. Starting off on a real positive topic, we're going to be talking about the tridemic. The tridemic is a term used to describe the triple threat from COVID-19, RSV, and the flu simultaneously spreading this winter, hitting healthcare systems hard, overwhelming pediatric hospitals, and affecting families everywhere we're all feeling the strain. So I'm here today with pediatrician Melissa Wallach to discuss what she's seeing right now, predictions for the season, how to stay safe. So thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Wallach. We really appreciate you coming in. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to our conversation. So just from your perspective, I've been, you know, doing a little research about it. It's saying that three quarters of pediatric hospital beds are full. What would you say the state is for New Jersey just on like tridemic? So it is true that there has been an overwhelming increase in respiratory illnesses and specifically the three viruses that you name RSV, flu, and COVID-19. And as a result of that, um, the emergency rooms have been flooded with patients. Um, Our offices, I work in an outpatient setting, my office every day, very, very busy. And as a result, the children that do need to be admitted for a higher level of care have been taking up many of, as you said, the beds um, are filled. And as a result of that, there are often times where children are admitted to the hospital and then they are sort of in that like holding pattern where they're waiting for a room to be free for someone to be discharged from upstairs to then be brought to their room. So sometimes there are even, unfortunately, patients that are spending nights in the emergency room with their families, um, which is, you know, stressful, especially for a parent and their child, a baby, especially if it's a small, small baby. Yeah, that's terrifying. I I have a young child, so I can imagine the fear, you know, that must be happening. So let's take a couple steps back and let's just talk about these viruses that are spreading. I'm sure we all know, you know, symptoms of COVID. It's been talked about for two years, so maybe we'll skip COVID for right now. Um, RSV, you want to talk a little bit about RSV, what that looks like? Sure. So that stands for respiratory syncytial virus. Um, And it's a virus that if you and I were to get it, we probably would just get a bad head cold. But when a little baby gets it because their airways are smaller, as a result of the virus, um, the airways can get inflamed and it causes something called bronchiolitis, which itis is inflammation of the bronchioles, which are the smaller airways that are, you know, branch off of our, our trachea. And so as a result of that, they have increased work of breathing and they can have hypoxia, which is low oxygen. And they can also get dehydrated from having to work extra to breathe. They can also have high fevers, which also can cause them to be in a distressed mode. And um, they can, when we listen with our stethoscopes, they actually sound like a whistling sound, almost very akin to what asthma sounds like. And so it's a very stressful thing for, especially for a first time parent or even a parent, if they've been one before, for a little baby to develop these symptoms. And so depending upon the severity of those symptoms would determine whether or not I can manage it in my office and have them even follow up with me the following day, just, you know, close follow up with me versus going to the emergency room and having to stay. And you may say, well, who, who do we have to, you know, is it all babies? Um, so certainly six months of age and under is the higher risk group. Babies that are born prematurely, meaning born before nine months of pregnancy, 
Um, and full-term babies, if they have underlying uh, cardiac disease or chronic lung disease, and that even can extend up to even age two years old. So you can even have a two-year-old child that is, um, has a chronic lung or a chronic heart disease, and they would be a high risk for RSV. Yeah, that was going to be my question just about age, like kind of what age group do you get in where you're maybe out of the clear? But um, so treatment at home, treatment in the doctor's office, treatment in the hospital, what like what can you do? Is it treated just kind of like a cold, like fluids and rest and right, so humidifiers? Yeah, like, no, that's a very good question. And I know it's very frustrating for parents when we say, oh, it's just supportive care. They're like, what do you mean? What does that mean? Like, what can I do? Certainly, if they have a fever, you can give Tylenol. If they're under six months of age, you can only give acetaminophen, which is Tylenol. Six months and above, you can give Motrin, which is ibuprofen, for the fever part. For the breathing part, they're really actually in the literature, um, it says even medicines like albuterol, which we use for asthma, which is a bronchodilator, is not really recommended. There are some situations where we try it. For example, if there's a strong family history of asthma, if the child themselves already has asthma, if they have bad eczema, other things that are in that sort of line of asthma, we may trial it. But really, they need aggressive suctioning of the nose because um, they get very, very congested, and that contributes to the respiratory distress. So especially before they sleep, before they eat, you want to clean that nasal airway as best you can. You can use normal saline and um, a bulb syringe, or they have a product that is a newer product from when uh, from when my son was little called the Nose Frida, which is like a straw type of oh, yeah. thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm familiar. <laughs> and, and there's a valve, so you're not going to be like but... drinking your baby's boogers. <laughs> but um, yeah. <laughs> so, But yes, that's really the most important thing. And then hydration. So like, you, you know, a lot of times think about it when you have a cold. Do you really want to drink milk or eat dairy? Probably not. So yeah. even for the babies that are either formula or breastfed, they may then switch over to a little bit of Pedialyte um, if they won't take their full formula feeds or breastfeeding feeds just so they don't get dehydrated. So again, when you think about when can when do they have to go to the hospital, if they're dehydrated, they need IV fluids, that would be a reason. If their oxygen levels were low, they would maybe need oxygen support. And then management of this respiratory distress, whether it is breathing treatments or just someone coming in to do that, like wall suctioning that we don't have at home. Like, you know, the hospital has a a machine that yeah. can suction mm -hmm. better than the the straw or the bulb so yeah i've had some fun with bulb suction make sure you <laughs> expel the whatever you got sucked in before you go back to your baby's face you had mentioned uh sorry i just like it caught my ear you said eczema related to asthma those like if your child has eczema that would put them more at risk for like a breathing condition Possibly. So there are um, diseases that are immunoglobulin E mediated. And so um, allergic rhinitis, which is like seasonal allergies, eczema, which is a skin condition, and then asthma. There are some children that have one of the three, two of the three, or all three of the three. And of course, none of the three. But um, so sometimes if I have, I've had babies that have had really bad eczema, and they sometimes will, when they get exposed to a virus like this, they could theoretically be more prone to wheeze worse than someone who doesn't it's not always a hundred percent the case but it's something that i think about when i'm yeah. managing those patients that's so interesting so you mentioned a couple more things dehydration ways to i guess monitor and keep track of that is that just purely looking at like are they having you know wet diapers and oh, stuff so like that a, yeah that's a very good question so um tears when they cry if their mouth looks very dry the tongue looks very dry and um of course decrease in urine output which is the decreased wet diapers um those would be something that like a person that's not medical could could observe for and notice for for little kids 
I, when my daughter was sick, I remember the pediatrician, he told me not to give her, I think like Gatorade or something like that. Should you not be trying to give them like those sports drinks that are supposed to keep you hydrated? Right. I wouldn't, certainly in little babies, I would not use Gatorade. You can use Pedialyte. Usually they recommend six months and up, but sometimes we'll use the, the non-flavored one for littler ones. You can mm-hmm. use it for the littler babies as long as it's not flavored. You can use the flavored ones for six, but not Gatorade and Powerade. I'm just talking about Pedialyte itself. Right. Okay. And then just noticing like breathing differences, like if they're a little congested and you hear kind of like a wetness and like, is that, you know, the big cause for concern? Like, what does it sound like? Or will you hear it and know like, oh, gosh, this is not good. So it's a combination of things. A lot of it's looking at the child and how they appear. But Mm -hmm. um, certainly they can make a grunting sound, which is a way of respiratory distress because they're trying to push air in and out and so they can go uh, uh, like a grunting sound little babies their noses may flare out like that um they also can have something called retractions which is when the muscles between the ribs are moving sometimes people will call it in layman's terms belly breathing or the little notch above the um rib cage will suck in like you'll see it moving inward that's also a sign of distress um and then you may hear the wheeze but the wheeze may not be there not everybody will wheeze with bronchiolitis they may just have coughing fits but even if they are wheezing you may not hear it without a stethoscope so you may not hear that that wheeze sound that whistling musical sound yeah i guess it's just keeping your ear for anything that sounds different and if they and if they look like they're tired you know certainly like the term lethargic sometimes parents use that and the babies aren't actually lethargic if they're truly lethargic that's usually a sign that they're very very sick um, so if they're looking extra sleepy, um, if they're not waking up to feed, if they're not, you know, uh, not crying because they're so, too tired to cry, that would be another sign that, you know, they could be in trouble. Yeah. All right. I'm going to loop back now on our other viruses. Okay. So <laughs> the flu, the flu in kids, is that looking the same as the flu is in adults? Like what else are we looking at? Well, some of the symptoms definitely overlap. Um, remember the children six under six months of age are not eligible for the flu vaccine Mm -hmm. so those that's why it's really important for adults that have kids that age in their house if they would be willing to to get the vaccine to protect their children we do recommend that um just like we recommend like the whooping cough when women are having their babies to prevent that vaccine um similar kind of idea because the baby's too young to get it Uh, but they can usually develop uh, high fevers just like we can it's hard for obviously an infant can't tell you if they're having body aches um kids can certainly like school age and you know toddlers even that are talking can tell you oh you know if their back hurts or their legs hurt or something like that and of course the respiratory you know running nose cough sore throat that kind of a thing so a lot of it does overlap with a lot of the covid symptoms right that was what i was going to ask at this point are there really many differences in COVID and flu symptoms? I mean, I know COVID in the beginning, it was like loss of taste and smell well, and all that. I don't really know. Is that still that's a good, happening? It's a good question. I, I haven't heard a lot of that happening lately. I think that they're now almost like ready to call it not a pandemic, but just that it's, you know, here to stay, just like mm-hmm. the flu is endemic, like an epidemic that every year there's the flu and maybe every, I don't know <laughs> if every year there'll be COVID, but I feel like um, there are some rapid office uh, tests where you can test for both flu and COVID together. In one of my offices, we have that. My other office, we have a PCR still send out for COVID, but yet the rapid flu. But actually, that was another thing I was going to bring up. I don't know if it's a question you asked, but 
sadly, even those supplies are dwindling, like the ability to even test. So now we're going to have to really rely on old school, like our physical exam and the clinical symptoms that the patient walks in with. And if it sort of seems like the flu, treat them that way. Um, so the difference between um, flu and RSV, there is an antiviral medicine. The gen the brand name is Tamiflu, which is easier to say than also mm -hmm. some of you. <laughs> so um, you know, we just just to make it easier, just call it Tamiflu, and that is actually approved, believe it or not, down to little itty bitty babies. The problem is that the side effect is often like upset stomach. So sometimes I'll tell the parents, well, I can prescribe this for you for the child, but if the baby or child winds up vomiting and feeling worse on the medicine, then just stop it. Yeah. Um, and and it's also advised to really give between the first like two days, maybe up to max of three days of illness. So if they come to me and they've been sick for five days already, I don't really even offer the Tamiflu because uh, it won't what be What is the good. Tamiflu supposed to do? Just sort of minimize the duration and hopefully prevent the spread to other people too. Hmm. So a combination. Sometimes some doctors will prescribe it for the other sibling as well. But that's what it's meant to do, sort of, you know, like calm it down a little bit. It's not going to necessarily make them better that much faster, but hopefully prevent... So it's sometimes it's actually recommended in people that you feel like might develop a worse flu that would need hospitalization to prevent the hospitalization. That's another indication to use Tamiflu. So if you have a kid that has a congenital heart disease and even though they've had their flu shot, they get the flu, you may want to prescribe that patient the Tamiflu so you prevent them from getting to the point where they need to be in the hospital. I don't know if we touched on this, but RSV treatment then, like what can you do for that breathing issue? Like in, if they are in the hospital, like are they on, you know... Oxygen, so, like how does that work? Right, so sometimes they are on oxygen. If their oxygen levels are below certain numbers, they will be on oxygen. And sometimes, like I said, they'll try the breathing treatments even though there's been a lot of studies to show that they don't get any better with albuterol, but sometimes we just try it. And racemic epinephrine is another one because we just those are things we can try and see if they help. And then um, as a preventative for preemies, if there, there's very strict criteria, there's something called Synergis, which is palivixumab, which is a monoclonal antibody that can be given when for ICU, needle needle ICU graduates that are born, say, at 25 weeks premature, 27 weeks, 28. I, I, I don't want to misquote the cutoff. There's stringent criteria now. It's gotten stricter over the years, but that's a monthly injection that's given to prevent RSV. Um, but there's only a you know, limited population that's eligible for that. Right. So now that we're kind of talking about prevention, what what measures should we all be taking to prevent, you know, these three and any other cold that's coming our way? Well, it's a good thing, you know, to bring up only because now that um, we have all of these diseases and no one wants to hear this because they're tired of it. But the the ma <laughs> the mask, may, oh, I mean, I don't I'm know. Just no one really wants to. I mean, it's. It's hard to get little kids also to wear masks, and especially after we had to deal with it for so long with the COVID pandemic. But that's one thing you can do um, if you're in like a higher risk situation, like a crowded place. I mean, you know, I'm not saying that we necessarily have to go back to those strict, strict masking guidelines. Um, but of course, the basic stuff, washing your hands, wiping down surfaces with, you know, Lysol or Clorox wipes and you know, trying not to let your kids share drinks and, you know, and tell them not to share with for the teenagers with their friends because a lot of times they'll do that. Yeah. Uh, they'll eat out of the same plate or something like that. Oh, yeah. Um, kids you know, are all the same. Sense. Two to 18, I'm sure they're all doing the same thing. Yeah. Sharing yeah. snacks, sharing, sharing drinks. Right, put your hand, right, and touching everything without washing their hands. Picking so, noses, I don't know. Yeah, I, that that's true, especially <laughs> the most common cause of nosebleeds is from picking. So, yeah, oh, they, they do so like to do happening. that. <laughs> yeah. 
So, all right. So the hand washing, general, just you know, hygiene tips and wearing masks. And oh, and all of course, stuff. I'm sorry, I forgot to mention the vaccine. So if there you um, if you have not yet received your COVID vaccine, your flu vaccine. For RSV, like I said, there's the it's not technically it's not a vaccine, it's a monoclonal antibody, but again, that's very strict criteria. And those parent patients would have been told about that when they were in the just getting discharged from the nursery or the NICU. And then also, um, there there's actually interestingly some scientific research about an RSV vaccine for adults because I know we're I'm a pediatrician, but um, when you talk about um, other high-risk people. So in other words, if a grandparent is taking care of a baby that has RSV and they're over 65 and they have COPD or something, they could actually, the adult can get sick with RSV too. So there's actually been some uh, work on RSV vaccines for adults. So maybe there's hope then that we'll get the vaccine for kids too for RSV someday. (laughs) Yeah. You just sparked a question for me about, you know, the caretakers and stuff like that. I guess what what should be protocol? I guess, you know, you could wear a mask, but like, let's say you have elderly people, grandparents watching your kids and the kids are sick. Like, what should you be doing? Yeah, I mean, it, it's hard to prevent everything 100%, but as much as you can not, you know, having your, you know, inhaling each other's, uh, you know, respiratory secretions and um, washing hands. And, you know, it's, it's hard, though, if that's the only person that can watch the baby so that the mom can go to work or the dad yeah. can go to work. It's... um you may be left with, you know, hoping that they don't get sick because you're right. Some of these elderly patients can also get pretty sick with with all three of these viruses, actually. Yeah, it's tough. And you don't want to tell them, you know, don't be hugging the baby. Don't do that. But sometimes <laughs> I know. you have to. Sometimes you have to, just like when they're first born. Um, I always tell people, don't pass your baby around to everyone that comes to visit. You know, realize that that baby can get sick because their immune system is just developing. And so. Oh, that's a great point. So, I mean what would you tell like those new fresh moms out there who are trying to protect their baby? Just what's something, I feel like some people get it, you know, especially if they're a parent and some people don't like, why don't you want me to see your baby? I guess, what would you tell those new moms? I, I know. So I tell them if they're, cause some people are, have no problem being, you know, sort of matter of fact, you know, direct. Yeah. yeah do not touch my baby <laughs> or you could just touch the baby's feet or something like that. But if they are more timid or afraid to say, I always say you could just tell them that I told you, you know, I visited my pediatrician and she was really emphatic about the fact that my baby could get a fever. And even if it's caused by your cold, I have to have my baby come to the hospital, which is true for a certain age group from zero to for certainly the first month, sometimes up to two months of life, they need to have a sepsis workup just to diagnose that it's not something like meningitis or bacteremia that needs, you know more treatment and more hospitalization so you know what do you really want to put my baby through that (laughs) like just wash your hands or just see me another day you know um and that's why i said you know sometimes you can't prevent if someone comes over and they didn't know they were sick right but um if someone's already sick you hope that they'll be honest and they'll visit you a different day hopefully yeah that's one thing i feel like covid at least did it very much brought to the front of like don't go places when you're sick i feel like people used to go places sick all the time you're coming in the office you're coughing you're going to the grocery store you're coughing i feel like people have at least gotten a little more conscious of it to say you know what i'll keep my germs home today right and even for the ones say that have like a two-year-old and then they have a newborn at home and the or two or three-year-old and they're the two or three-year-old especially if they're going to preschool or daycare and they're around a lot of other children is just you don't you know don't want to totally isolate them from their new brand new baby sibling but to try to keep them sort of by the feet rather than by the head of the baby and try not to let them breathe in the baby's face as much as you can because you don't want to totally 
not let them bond with their new sibling because already they may be jealous that they're not the only kid anymore. Yeah. So, but you know, just um, just being cautious of that and having and washing their hands when they get home from the daycare and things like that. Yeah, that's a great point. I feel like a lot of families are in that space with the kids in school and then the little ones. So it's really important to try, I guess, figure out how to keep everybody safe, but getting to spend that time and, together. And the parents will probably often, you know, that's what I'll hear too. They'll come, oh, it just went around the whole house. You know, everybody yeah. got it. <laughs> That happens sometimes, Definitely. despite your best, you know, efforts to not spread it. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be hard to to keep it out. Um, so looking at where we are now with everything spreading, I guess, how do you what are your predictions for the rest of winter, I guess? Yeah, so it's a good question, because from what I'm hearing, even just from, you know, folks that work at the CDC, when, you know, they speak on the news and things like that, um, you know, it we are still in the surge. I don't know when it's going to level off. I mean, oh, we hope by, you know, March, maybe. I mean, usually flu season typically is really winding down by March. I mean, last year it spread into, it was weird. We would have positive flus like even in April, which is so unusual. But I think that's because of the COVID. It just sort of shifted a lot of the normal seasonal bugs. Um, so so I don't know exactly, but I'm I'm hopeful that hopefully it'll gradually, you know, each week it'll gradually get worse. But I fear that, you know, um, you know, the holiday holiday gatherings, you know, anytime that those things are happening, that can also cause um, people to get sick. Because I know after Thanksgiving and then yeah, you know, a lot of Christmas, spikes you know, there. So they can be spiking. So. so what have you been seeing in your office? What are patients coming in with? What are, I guess what's the most common ailments right now? So I still would say that respiratory illnesses in general, um, you know, cough, runny nose, sore throat, headache, fever, sometimes body aches, definitely a lot of influenza A, specifically flu A, lots and lots of that, um, some RSV. And I have had to send a few babies to the emergency room to get evaluated and a hand, you know, maybe one or two of those several that I've sent have gotten, didn't have needed to stay overnight, but thankfully not for too many days. And I've had one asthmatic patient that I did follow up for. I didn't send them, but I did the post-hospital who actually went to the ICU. But I don't think he had the flu. I think he had a different viral illness. I think he had rhinoenterovirus, which is another respiratory virus. So there's, just so everyone knows, it's not just, we're talking mostly about these three, but there's other viruses out there. And sometimes we can figure out what that is because, um, for example, I know some urgent cares and emergency rooms have a big respiratory panel that covers like 10 or so viruses and then they can say it was this one and that one but i know in my office we don't have that respiratory panel so we just can test for certain things and interestingly and i don't know if this is just anecdotal to my office as i see patients in asbury park and neptune but um i haven't seen a whole lot of strep and i would say that's even been for me personally um like regular strep throat for the last two years, I've not had so, so, so many, which is just interesting to me. And I don't know if that has anything, I'm assuming it has something to do with the pandemic. And again, I don't have the statistics on how much that affects other offices. But one other thing I wanted to mention um, is that there has been a surge in certain states in the country on post-viral bacterial super infections. Um, so something to look out for, um, and we did have a case at our hospital uh, where the baby was very, very sick is just um, even strep and staph and some other bacteria can cause infection. So once the body's already immunocompromised from the virus, sometimes these bacteria that live in our body and are normally kept at bay come out and they can cause harm. So 
if the if the child doesn't seem to follow the regular course of you know feeling miserable for a few days of flu and then getting better that'd be another reason to call your pediatrician or go back in to make sure that there's not a secondary infection happening would that be different symptoms from that first virus? So a lot of times it, they can overlap, but sometimes they could just be way sicker, you know, like lethargic, um, you know, uh, high fevers again. That like So maybe they were febrile and then it broke and then it resurged again. That would be a way to know. Sometimes they may have um, sore throat, rash, maybe skin infection, um, different other things too, but just something to think about. Um, thankfully, it's not the common thing, but it has been happening a little bit more recently. I've read a few stories about that in the recent news. So just to keep an eye out for that. Do you think it's happening more just because more people are getting sick? I think so. Everything. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. So we have an issue with, oh, that's another point actually I wanted to bring up is that, so we talked about the swabs being on low supply for like testing flu and a lot of the offices RSV, we're not able to test everyone. So we're trying to save it for the people where we think it might impact our management plan. But the other thing which is sort of unbelievable as a pediatrician is that things like amoxicillin, even acetaminophen and ibuprofen, um, cold and cough remedies, they're like flying off the shelves. And um, I've had to often alter, like even just for ear infections, we use amoxicillin a lot. And for the last few weeks, I've had to change it to a different uh, antibiotic because the amoxicillin was not available. And by the time it would be available, like it's too many days, like either the kid would get horribly worse or maybe the ear, you could argue maybe the ear infection would resolve it was mild. But um, yeah, so that's really interesting. Um, Something I didn't think I'd ever It's a tough time for parents out there. I'll tell you (laughs) that formula you still can't find. You can't find anything. Even albuterol has been short and Adderall, which is used for ADHD, Mm -hmm. has also been on short uh, supply. Yeah, all the stuff that pediatricians prescribe. And like you mentioned, the formula is still an issue, not as bad as it was, but uh, that's still an issue somehow. Store after store is just empty. You know, and here in New Jersey, we have so many strip malls, so many stores. I'm like, how is that possible with all those stores that there's not, you know, know. everything you could possibly need on the shelves, but. I know. Yeah, it's a crazy time. Crazy time to be a parent. You were talking a little bit about, um, like, not seeing strep as much and wondering if it's related to the pandemic. And I'm wondering, do you think this, like, I guess, this rise of RSV and flu is that also as a result of COVID, like everyone kind of not gathering and now all of a sudden every all the viruses are back out to get us? I, I do think that has something to do with it um, because, you know, when you're the way that you're one of the ways that your immune system gets built up is being exposed to things and fighting it. So the fact that we haven't had lots of colds when we were inside for two years. Yeah, that's and not like you said, being around each other, those two things together, I think definitely contribute. I mean, for sure, we've seen a change in like the months that they've been peaking and the fact that there's more of it. And, it and and last year was a very good flu season, meaning there was not much flu in comparison to how early on we are now already seeing these high numbers um, in, you know, in the season that compared to last year. You just said something that sparked another question <laughs> for me just about your immune system and I guess needing that exposure. So do do little kids need to basically get sick all the time in order to have a strong immune system? I mean, I think that, you know, it's not maybe like something that people would want to hear, but I mean, one thing obviously is vaccines for certain things, right? We can mm-hmm. prevent polio and tetanus and pertussis and, you know, certain other things with vaccines. So that, you know, you don't, we don't want to get those, you know, measles and things like that. You want to use the vaccines for that. But 
you know, it's why when kids go to daycare for the first time or nursery school for the first time that they get sick all the time. And parents will tell me, Dr. Wallach, my child has had a runny nose for 30 days straight. And I'm like, and I'm like, I try to have to tell them it's not the same thing. Like it's most likely they had something and probably uh, it didn't seem like it, but they probably got a little bit better for a day or Mm -hmm. two and then they got something else. And that's why now when they hit kindergarten, they probably won't be sick that much because their body has already been exposed to so many viruses when they were littler. Whereas years ago, um, when people, you know, when moms were at home more than they are now, the kids went to school older, so they got sicker <laughs> in kindergarten instead of in daycare or preschool. So, Is there like an age where that, I guess, stops? Like if, let's say, this would never happen, but let's say a person has been in total isolation for 20 years and then they come out. <laughs> Do they need this same kind of... I mean, I think like that yeah, if your body is, is naive to something and all of a sudden it gets exposed, regardless of how old you are, I think you would have some sort of issue with meaning like you would get sick from it, I would think, you know, because yeah. you, your body develops immune response based on the exposure. So, yeah. Interesting. I mean, I'm not an immunologist. But. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I I heard some somewhere it was a physician saying that like your child, if they're in school, essentially they're going to be sick like once a month. Do you think that's true? Yeah, I mean, I always say like around 10 or so infections, like in the fall and winter is a reasonable that's amount. Rough. They don't ha- necessarily mean that they need like, you know, antibiotics for all, because that's the other thing that yeah. I want. I would, would like to say just because a lot of times people are frustrated and they think that that's the answer that they need. And what the three things that we were focusing on for the most of this um, discussion has been on three viral mm-hmm. illnesses. So unless they develop a secondary bacterial infection, um, you know, they don't need antibiotics, but there are things that our antibiotics are, are used for. So if they do have strep throat, and again, I want to mention that that was just something that in my own observation, so there could be other offices listening to this saying, I have a lot of strep, <laughs> so I don't want to say that it's not happening at all. But strep throat is a reason, um, ear infections is another reason to take antibiotics. So there are some indications in pneumonia in certain, in certain types of pneumonia. So you definitely... Um, that's why we do want you to come in so we can examine and look in the ears, listen to the chest with a stethoscope and, and look in the throat and see what we see, feel for the glands and different things like that. Yeah, definitely to keep watch. So I have a just a myth question for you. If your child's mucus is green, does that mean they need an antibiotic? I've just heard that and I'm like, I don't think that's true. So that's a good question. That's a good yeah, it's a myth. I mean, because what happens is um, as part of your body's immune response to whatever the agent that's causing the symptoms, and in this case, most of the time it's viral, just because there are more viruses out there than bacteria, the mucus will change color. But I hear that a lot. Oh, they're, it's it's green now, so definitely I need the antibiotic. Yeah. And I'm like, not necessarily, maybe, depending on what else is going on, but certainly not 100%. And and the other thing is, well, they'll say sometimes to me, well, doc, my child has an infection. I say, yes, they do, but it's a viral infection. It's not always a bacterial infection. And sometimes it is a bacterial infection in those cases. Yes, you're right, an antibiotic is needed. But we don't want to overuse the antibiotics because we want we don't want to produce um, bugs that are resistant to them. So then we run out of ones to use when we need them. So Right. And they also have side effects too, right? They can cause diarrhea and other things. So... Yeah, added to the list. You don't need that. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you so much, Dr. Wallach. Is there anything else I guess you'd want parents, caregivers, kids, if they're listening? What do you want them to know about the Tridemic? So I think um, just like we said, you know, be vigilant and be um, be careful of 
you know, when you're out and uh, wash your hands. And if you can get your vaccine, if you haven't been vaccinated, as long as you don't have a contraindication to that. And, um, you know, um, and call your doctor if you're not sure what to do. We are here to help you. That's the other thing, actually, just you don't necessarily need to rush to the emergency room if certainly if the child is in distress and it's a breathing problem and you're not you don't think you have time, then always go. But if you're not sure what to do, um, you can reach out to your doctor because we have you know ways to reach us outside of normal office hours. I'm sure other practices do as well. Most most doctors have an on-call service. So That's great. Thank you so much, everyone listening. Be healthy. Be well. We got this. The material provided through this podcast is intended to be used as general information only and should not replace the advice of your physician. Always consult your physician for individual care.